I'd just like to welcome you all to the Apple Store for this wonderful film. Well, it is interesting that the character of Jeremy, we see the one who goes missing, we see him in flashbacks primarily. So, it, and it is, it is, as you say, mostly about the people left at home and the responsibility of that. And it's interesting to me that the story was something that you heard that happened 20 years ago, but was clearly something mysterious lurking in your head that was... I don't know, destined to become a story of some sort. And you also mentioned that the, the idea of, you know, that this came from real life. Was this something that, uh, that, you, that both of you were kind of conscious of portraying something close to your own lives? Like the kind of friends that you have, the people that you know? Uh, yeah, a absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> Felicity, uh, while she was interested in that event, historical event, she was also very interested in, in developing a story that was, um, you know, set in a world uh, you know, very much like our, our own and, and, and populated by characters very much like ourselves and our friends and, um, uh, you know, the characters were, were basically the same demographic, it was the same environment. Uh, or, you know, she, she was talking a bit about the idea of, I guess, Generation X sort of growing up a little bit and having all these new responsibilities, um, you know, having children and mortgages and, um, uh, you know, things like that. And, um, and you know, we, we had a lot of friends who, um, and who were parents and we actually had two kids while we were writing the script. So. We, we kind of uh, did a bit of, um, what would you call it, um, method, method writing um, through the process. But, um, yeah, I mean, the main thing was that we, we, you know, the main thing for me was I was determined that the film had real integrity, that it had real plausibility and, um, and that it, you know, that, you know, for both of us, that audiences would walk out feeling that, you know, it, that that could so easily have been them and what would they possibly have done in that situation and so to achieve that, I mean there was a lot of things went into the aesthetic as well but, but in terms of the story, uh, that idea of truth was, was paramount and so we were consistently challenging one another, you know, how, how, how would we genuinely respond in this situation and we're both actors as well and so we were approaching the whole thing from a, very much from a character point of view and, and, and um, yeah, so it was, it was, you know, it, it presented an opportunity for us to really explore and I guess expose ourselves and our world um, as we were experiencing it at, at, at the point in our lives, which is what we wanted to do. I think it's actually really refreshing uh, as a film watcher to see these relatable Australian characters on screen. It's kind of a remarkable thing. I hope there's a lot more of it in upcoming films um, by Australian filmmakers. And, uh, you know, you were talking about how you wanted it to be genuine and uh, real to the lives that you have and that you know of. And I wanted to, to talk about the, the story that it's, um, it's not just... It could so easily have become a straight thriller. Like, mm. it has all the elements of a thriller and it has you on the edge of your seat and hard in your mouth at points of the film, but at the real core is the relationship um, between Felicity's character and also and Joel Edgerton, um, who plays Dave. And was that like a fine line that you were trying to, to balance? The, the mystery, the thriller, and also a relationship drama? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, the whole idea from the beginning was that we, we had a, a genuinely entertaining story. And, and, and I was very determined to sort of kick the ball up in the air right from the, from the get-go and, and to keep, keep it suspended throughout so that the audience had this consistent need to know. You know, I mean, that, that's what I look for in any kind of story, be it a book or a TV show or, or, um, or a movie. You know, that, that sort of page-turning quality where you can't put it down. So there, it was always intended that that, that would have that sort of overarching kind of mystery thriller narrative that would keep you in your seat and needing to know. But, the, the, you know, the idea was that the real investment uh, as an audience member was in the, in the characters. And, and so we, we sort of framed and, and structured it in a way that sort of allowed, you know, it opened up enough gaps for us to sort of get in there and, and spend some time with these people and really get to know them and, um, and, and ultimately care about them. And, and yeah, that was always the intention, to, um, to keep the audience needing to know, but ultimately to, to have them care about the people that they've just been tracking for 90 minutes. I mean, uh, for me, the, the, the real heart of the film was always the relationship drama. Um, and when I sort of, at the beginning of the writing process, I was very interested in watching a, a, a relationship that I guess had gone, that was no longer in that first flush of love, but it was at the point where, you know, you have to work hard for relationships sometimes. And sometimes, I mean, often the relationship becomes a lot stronger and deeper for that hard work that you put into it. So I was interested in really testing our relationship and watching two people, you know, fight for, for love and for their family as well. Um, but I also knew it that, that even from the beginning that that doesn't necessarily make for a great movie experience. Quite often you have to put people on the edge of their seat through something else. And that's where the, the, that overarching story of the missing uh, man came in. And we were also very influenced by um, Danish films, like uh, for anyone who's seen some of the Susanna Pierre films. Uh, and often Danish films tend to take their actors and really throw them into high-stakes situations and, and allow the actors to kind of go there. And I, I think we felt that we hadn't really seen that as yet in an Australian film, so we were wanting to... to raise the stakes and push characters into really testing situations. Yeah, and we, and we also wanted to sort of, uh, you know, illustrate that, that, um, that these characters were flawed, you know, that, that all of us make mistakes and that everybody, uh, well, in, in this situation is in some way responsible for something and, and we didn't want everybody to come off scot-free. Um, and so, you know, we pushed a couple of envelopes there and, um, and I'm really glad we did. We tried to keep it, again, really based in, in something credible. Well, given that you two are partners in real life and you are working on this script together, you must have had a collaborative back and forth across the dinner table, buying groceries, all those sorts of things. Was, there, was it a long process, writing the script? Were there a lot of different versions? Oh, there were many, many different versions. I think Angie was saying the other day we shot the 10th draft of the script. Um, but, but in terms of the working relationship, because we are living together... It really, I think, expedited the writing process because, and because we're the types of people who like to be completely absorbed in in whatever particular creative process we're in, we we just would be talking about it, uh, yeah, at the dinner table, in the car. I remember on long trips to go to family barbecues or whatever, we would be talking about it all the time, and that that was a kind of became a real shorthand. And it meant we were brainstorming at all times. Like, suddenly you go, oh, what about that to solve that problem? And, you know, I think it was a really nice way to work because rather than having to 
turn up at a certain time and you know have a meeting with someone to start the writing process. We were we were doing it all the time, and we in fact never stopped. Uh, we yeah, were I mean, we, we were, you know, absolutely sort of infected by the idea from the get-go, and so it sort of never left us. And it was this ongoing process. And with Ange too, by the time Angie came on, we were sort of ringing her left, right, and centre, and 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 um, it just, uh, you know, it became our definitely our, our vocation. As there was no sort of uh, distinction between life and work or life and art. It was all just our our world, and and we very much threw ourselves into the shoes of the characters and yeah we had two kids so it was all sort of going on and it was uh, a great way to work. And Angie what at what point did you become heavily involved in the film because you have worked with um, members a lot of the people involved in Blue Tongue as well so was this something that you had wanted to make a a feature? Um, Yeah I was definitely uh, you know, I'd made quite a few shorts that had done really well internationally, so I was definitely looking to make a feature, and I had uh, quite a few in development. Um, but when these guys brought me this script, um, it was about third draft, I think, and um, Kieran and I knew each other because um, I've made shorts with some of the other Blue Tongue boys, and uh, he just rang me up, and, and in that phone call, he talked about a lot of... He talked about the film and and described it um, by mentioning a whole bunch of reference films. And the films that he talked about, I just love. And, you know, Danish cinema is, you know, a, a big love of mine. And, and, um, and so it really piqued my interest. And then when I read the script, I, I, even though it's very different to the, the script that we ended up shooting, I could really see, it was really evident on the page what they were trying to do. And I got really excited about it. So I, I came on board and that would have been in early 2008 and then I think we did probably about another three and a half years of script development and we um, we got into a script development program called Aurora which is a really prestigious program in Australia that um, films like Animal Kingdom and Little Fish and Somersault have all been through. It's kind of like a hothouse and you spend a year workshopping the script, the, the, the three of us, um, and it was, it was great. You know, it's just a lot of discussion. You do a residential where you go away for seven days and, and you're just talking about the film 24-7 and, um, yeah. With really great advisors from overseas too, like amazing people. Yeah, yeah people like uh, Ted Hope, who, did, who produced 21 Grams and um, The Ice Storm, you know, and you're just kind of sitting in a room all day with him talking about the story. It's amazing, amazing creative process. And that really helped us to galvanise the script. And at the end of that process, um, we had a, a, a what we call a market-ready script, which is a script that was ready for me to take out into the marketplace and start raising money. Yeah, yeah and I mean, ultimately, just, just on the back of that, to anyone out there who's a filmmaker... Um, you know, script is everything, and it's, it's literally everything, and, and um, uh, that's where the investment should, should categorically go, and, and that's the good thing about the agencies here, is they do get behind a, a good idea, and they'll help you, you know, to do that. It's, um, but, you know, it, it, it's the one thing that will get you over the line at the end of the day. Well, I suppose that, I mean, for me, when I first saw it, I thought, you know, Australian couples going to Cambodia on holiday, I thought, why hasn't this appeared in a film before? It's such, a, it's such an incredibly common thing. But it, is, it also has that universal feel. So it's interesting that uh, you had involvement with, you know, international advisors as well. Like, it manages to be a universal story and not just 
something local. Yeah, I mean, that, that was very important from the get-go. I mean, I, I always hoped that, you know, somebody in, you know, Alaska would, would, would relate to this story on a, every level, and, uh, and they should. And, um, yeah, and I think the best stories are generally uh, more universal than parochial, you know. With ten scripts of this film, ten treatments, uh, and you, Angie, came on with the third script, and there were seven more to go, I imagine that there were a lot of changes in the writing, but also the editing. Well, only really two things uh, changed at all in the, in the cut. Um, one was, you know, the, the overall structure in terms of the flashbacks. We used to go back into sort of two bigger chunks of time and then we sort of broke, broke them up a little tiny bit more. Apart from that, the script is pretty much exactly the same as the, um, the film. But that um, particular moment fell... I mean, it, w we go back into that scene a little later in the film, uh, 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 sort of the second half of it, and we originally played the whole scene out. Um, but I remember we were in the middle of the cut and... Um, We'd started the, scene, the, the film in Cambodia with these kids and, 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 and um, it was really beautiful, but the idea of kicking a ball, as I said earlier, straight up and, and you know, we've got a, a pregnant woman. Um, we assume there's some sort of relationship, perhaps romantic, but we don't know for sure. Uh, he's talking about this place and where he'd like to stay if he had to stay somewhere for the rest of his life. Um, but we just, it just, you know, it, there's a lot of unanswered stuff there. And then we go straight into this sequence that sort of highlights the fact that they're actually not a couple, that, you know, she's got a different partner and he's got a different partner. So there's all these questions. And the idea was to keep the audience needing to know more. So there's all these questions. And, and we just sort of drip feed little bits of information here and there to keep them needing to solve this little puzzle. And so, yeah, and it just seemed to work. Uh, so we kept it there. Well, they, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they seem comfortable with each other, but also they don't really know each other's pasts. Like, mm. it sets up so much in that scene. It's such a good hook to start this mystery. Yeah, and it was also important to set up the character of Jeremy um, and, and, and highlight his sort of um, very effortless sense of charm and, uh, you know, he's just a lovely bloke. And then, you know, he's the guy who ultimately, the, you know, we find out something about. And... Uh, it keeps more questions in the air, I guess. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, we, we did... When you're editing a film, you, you do a lot of test screenings, and we did, we did a lot. So you, you invite people in um, to, who haven't read the script and don't know anything about the story to watch it. And, and I can't remember at what point we decided to, to throw that up the front. It was fairly late in the process, but it was just great because it, the response from the audience was ex exactly what you guys have just talked about. People were assuming that, that they were together, but then, you know, and, and even Jeremy's look at the end where he says, I'll, I'll stay here, but he has this strange kind of, yeah, m mysterious look on his face. But it really sort of really piqued everyone's attention. So, yeah, it was... Mm. It's remarkable that you, in the editing room, there were only two major changes made. That's quite yeah, I mean, something I was, special. I was, I was sort of um, really grateful for that because I, I largely feel that um, directing takes... Well, I feel that directing takes place largely on the, on the page. Um, I really believe that's a massive part of you know, you, your actual direction because there's a lot of music and... Um, you know, dynamism inherent in the screenplay, in any screenplay itself, if, if, if you're a writer-director, that is. And you should be sort of seeing it out and feeling it out in, in a kind of a musical sort of sense as you're writing. And, and um, 
you know, so I pay, you know, particularly, uh, you know, close attention to transitions and lengths of scenes. And, and I just, it's all a gut thing. And it was just, it was really r refreshing, I guess, uh, and validating to see it sort of play out and, and actually hold up. Um, and there's, uh, you know, very little of the film that we shot that didn't make the cut as well, which was also a nice surprise. Now, Felicity, were you involved in the editing process at all? I mean, you, as a co-writer, you must have been, you know, had some desire to see how it turned out. I wasn't, no, I wasn't involved in the editing process. I mean, <clears throat> I think for writers, once you're, once the film goes into production, your job's really over. As much as you might like to have some control, you don't. Um, and as an actor, you really have no, no place in the edit suite. The only thing that gave me some entry into the edit suite was my relationship to the director. Uh, and um, because I have a lot of influence over my husband, <laughs> uh, I did get to go in. But, you know, Kieran was very worried that I would... Uh, be watching myself mainly and, you know, be like, why did that little moment get cut where I was brilliant? You haven't put that in. But, and I, but at a certain point when some of the test screenings were going on and people started to have seen the film but I hadn't and, you know, people like the Blue Tongue guys were, were going in and I, I knew that they'd seen the film and I hadn't. At that point I kind of went, eh might be time for me to come in and I was lucky enough to be able to sit on my own in the edit suite and watch it on the the big sort of screen in the edit suite and Kieran and Jason the editor left and so I had the the the, the, the viewing to myself but it was quite good I found it very easy to kind of give um to not be invested as myself as an actor and just be able to stand back and look at the overall picture and and then I'm sure I gave wonderful feedback but no I was not really <laughs> she involved. Did. She gave very good feedback. It was actually quite good to have someone so involved in the development at arm's length in the edit and come in because some of the notes that Felicity gave at that time were just, you know, only a few things, but they were really important. So. And so, did you always have in mind that you would be Alice when you were writing the film? When I started writing it, I definitely... When I, you know, first sat down and sort of came up with the idea, I definitely wanted to create a story that I could play, you know, be involved in. Um, and then throughout the writing process of the, uh, of the script, I guess I, I sort of had it in my mind but it wasn't at the you know it wasn't at the forefront the story was at the forefront while I was actually creating or co-creating it uh, and I was just kind of I guess hoping that it would never get to a point where someone would like kick me off the project or something and uh, yeah I mean you know it was always going to be I was always going to play Alice. Uh, well, Joel Edgerton, who played your husband in the film, he plays Dave, said in a recent interview that the character Dave contains a lot of him, which is something that he doesn't do very often, that he's not particularly comfortable with. And I would have presumed that that character was also a lot like you, Kieran. Was there a collaborative uh, effort between you two, or did you kind of hand the reins to him to work that character out? Uh, well, a bit of both. I mean, like, during the writing process, I, um, as much as possible, would put myself in the shoes of, I guess, every character. But, um, but you know, by and large, uh, I'm not a woman, and, and, and a lot of the, uh, you know, intuition uh, that, that Felicity was bringing with regard to Alice, you know, sort of overrode mine. And, um, 
and, uh, and, and I sort of sunk my teeth into Dave, I guess. And, you know, he, he is in many ways just like me, I, I think. And, um, but when it came to playing it, I mean, the, the only thing that I was... I mean, we talked a lot about the character before, we, before he ever ended up in a rehearsal room or on set um, together. And, uh, you know, the, the main d uh, balancing act, I guess, it became about how to pitch him through the story, uh, you know, you know, bit by bit. You know, like it was hard, because you've got this delicate balance you've got to play. The only reason I'm sort of stumbling over this is I don't want to give too much away, but, um, you know, you, you want to keep the audience sort of with him and one step ahead of the character of Alice, who's sort of experiencing everything in the first... You know, it's, it's, it's pretty much from her point of view. She's going through it in real time. Dave's got a bit more information. He's a bit more ahead, as is the audience. Um, but we didn't want to lose any of the empathy that we were sort of building up around his character. And, 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 and the idea was that there was a kind of a, a paradoxical dynamic at play. He was clearly not a, an evil man. He was a, a good father, a good husband. I mean, he, there'd been a mishap. Um, and, and, you know, as I say, all the characters were flawed. But we could sense that there was a lot more to it. There was a lot more to what he knew and that what he wasn't... Uh, allowing Alice to know, and so it, it, you know, with the two of us, it was just about how to pitch that uh, performance throughout, I guess. But he brought, you know, he's a formidable actor, and most of the time, we just sort of hang back and watch. Well, as well as Joel Edgerton, Teresa Palmer is fantastic as Steph, and Anthony Starr as Jeremy. But two of the actors involved that really stood out to me were the children. They mm. are so genuine and yeah. warm and lovely in this film. And, you know, everyone says don't work with actors, I mean, with children or animals. Uh, but these, these kids are fantastic. The reactions of the kids are so genuine and sweet. Did, were they kind of in on the story or were, they, were their roles largely ad-libbed or...? Oh, no, they were uh, written exactly as, as they appear in the film. Um, you, know, we, the, the, you know, there's a couple of things. Uh, most important thing is, is the casting process. You've got to find the right kids, and, and they're hard to find, and we looked at over 200 kids to whittle it down um, through a series of shortlists to get to the two that we worked with. Um, and, you know, they require a certain... Um, you know, they, they need to be very bright, um, like a, a, and... Uh, you know, you, you play a lot of games with them just to see how, how, how focused and how, how well they're able to stay within a game uh, and not get distracted by cameras and other people. So it was always, every, every scene was kind of like a game. It was often like a test. Um, you know, the, the person who can get through this little game here, playing, you know, playing mummies and daddies and Max and Holly um, without looking at the camera or, you know, whatever, is the winner, you know, and so kids love that stuff. And... Um, um, you know, once we'd found them, it was a it was a matter of getting them very comfortable with Joel and Felicity, and and with me. Um, so there's a lot of play dates and so on, and and then when they were on set, they were just you know we we'd found the right kids, and there were a few tricks that you know we used here and there to to sort of uh, you know help with performance, but by and large they just they just nailed it and consistently too. So we were very lucky. We did do uh, something with that particular scene. Um, we had sent uh, um, Otto, who plays Max, um, to the museum uh, the day before with Tina Bursall, who plays his grandmother in the film. So when he's telling that story about the, the dinosaur, he's actually 
recalling something that he thought he saw at the museum, mm. and and that and it's so you know I mean you, you, it, it's so real and and yeah. So it was written in as a sort of sort of a dinosaur story, and then these guys were going to take the the baton from him and 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 continue with the scene, and, and you know the rest of it is actually scripted, but you know just to get him into that mindset and get him actually talking about something real was really effective. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're quite remarkable. Oh, they're lovely. The we, we fell in love with those kids. Yeah. Well, before I open questions out to the audience, I wanted to just talk a little bit about filming in Cambodia because when I first saw the trailer, you know, a long time before I saw the film, apart from the mystery of the story that's so well set up, uh, I was really intrigued by these, like the guerrilla-style shooting of the film, these kind of handheld-looking shots of the two sisters interacting in Cambodia, lounging on beaches, buying trinkets, you know, interacting with the locals. Mm. Um, was that something that you... Was that a difficult thing or was that something that you had just... Because you had visited Cambodia many times, I believe. Is that just something that you knew would happen? Or, I mean, how, do, how can you set up those sorts of shots? Well, well the, um, the events that take place in, the, in, in that opening montage were actually scripted. Um, uh, I won't give all of them away, but, you know, f the, you know every, every, every little setup we organised. We, um, you know, and, and it's the kind of country where you can, you know, ask for an elephant and it'll turn up, you know, pretty quickly. Um, and so we orchestrated all of those things and, and found all our locations and set them up. But then the idea was always that we were just going to shoot all of that sequence um, on, on, on just, you know, two cameras for a start. Um, and we shot them all on the little five, Canon 5D, so um, a different format to the rest of the film. Um, and, you know, the camera operators were very, uh, you know, discreet. We, they were hidden away, just mingling, looking like tourists, because they were ostensibly holding handheld still, uh, stills cameras like any other tourist. Our sound guy, John, who's just over here, was, you know, walking around with, a, you know, with his kit in a shoulder bag, looking again like a tourist. And we just set the... You know, they were virtually in... in well, actually in wardrobe from the time they got off the plane and we just kept rolling. So there's a couple of other little bits and pieces that ended up in there, but by and large it is all scripted and uh, we just kept it very flexible and light on its feet. Very small crew, small cameras, no one around us knew what we were doing because it's a different, uh, you know, you don't have to get releases for everybody in Cambodia. Um, do you have anything lucky. you want to add to that? What was that, the last bit? Not, getting not yeah. having to get releases for everyone? Yeah, well, actually, we did. Oh, did we? I have a pile of release knows. forms that's about uh, that high. There you um, go. So, yeah, no, but it's, a, you know, it, it's kind of a bit Wild West, uh, anything goes. Um, uh, yeah, and also, but just really quite free as well, you know. I mean, you have to get so many permits and all kinds of things here that... You can just sort of... And people are really obliging over there. No one's really worried about being on camera or, you know, yeah. So. As the producer, did you have to kind of open yourself up to the idea of chaos that, that might, might happen while you were there? Yeah, it was that quite... That does happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have no choice. And it was quite funny because Kieran and I had been on a, a recce there a few months earlier and we'd cast the, the actors and found all the locations. And so we were really kind of up on how it was going to work over there. And then when we shot there, we went over a little bit earlier as well. And then the rest of the crew came on, I think, a, a, a Monday night and we started shooting on the Tuesday morning. And 
And we, so we, we were already sort of in the vibe of Cambodia and that you really have to sort of change your expectations. Um, but the crew kind of got off the plane with all of their Australian expectations of everything that has to happen like clockwork and it's all got to be exactly right. And within the first few hours of shooting, you just saw everyone just go, okay, it's, this is how it's going to be. And so we're just going to deal with it. And, and everybody kind of then relaxed and really embraced the idea that it was going to be a bit unexpected, but that was kind of really fun as well. Yeah, there was, there, there was, it was a, a really fun time. I mean, it was really difficult and we were all, you know, most of us were very sick and, you know, we had our two little kids there and Felicity was still breastfeeding and, you know, there was all sorts of things happened. We had language issues, whole camera department didn't speak English. Uh, you know, we had Cambodian and Vietnamese actors who didn't speak English. We had trans, you know, all the gear was falling apart. But... There was something about that that was uh, incredibly invigorating, and we were so adrenalised and just trying to survive every day. Uh, that it was actually really buzzy, um, even though we were so horribly sick. And the light was so beautiful in those mm. scenes as well. And you were talking before about being so inspired by Danish filmmakers. Mm. And it's not just about kind of the drama and the personality of those films. It's also about so often the themes are this natural light and low lighting and that sort of thing. Was that also influential? Oh, yes. Uh, look, you know, part of that whole integrity, I guess, um, equation, um, I, I really didn't want to bring... I didn't want to draw any attention to the camera. I wanted it to be very organic and, and, and for, you know, for the audience to be, you know, right in the thick of this thing, to sort of fall into the skin of the characters and the story. And um, So I didn't want anything overt. Everything was pr pretty much shot at eye level. Um, but, I'm, you know, I take a lot of photos and I'm very particular about light and I'm very particular about framings. Um, and so everything was shot listed and very carefully organised, but it was organised in such a way that it was uh, unapparent. And that was the whole idea from the beginning. And um, always wanted to use available light where we could and, and you know, backlight things. And, yeah, it was, it was definitely an, an aesthetic we were after for uh, dramatic purposes as much as uh, aesthetic, I guess. And, and you were working with a wonderful cinematographer as well. Mm. That must have been kind of a delight to have someone like yeah, Jules yeah, yeah. to work and with. Hopefully he'll work with us for the rest of our careers. He's just, you know, he's amazing. Jules O'Loughlin, if you're ever looking for someone. Well, I think we might uh, see if the audience have any questions. There are microphones, so if you just want to raise your hand. Does anyone have any questions for the filmmakers? You guys said the, the script went through ten different drafts. I was just wondering what the final was like compared to the original, how much it changed, and what uh, the catalysts were for some of the changes? And what the catalyst was for some of the changes. So the question was, how, how much did the script vary from draft one through to draft ten? And what was it that sort of uh, triggered some of those changes or motivated some of those changes? Uh, Felicity, can you talk a bit? It changed an enormous amount, but I guess the, uh, many of the key element, key story elements were there, being that four people travel to Southeast Asia, one goes missing, story follows the rest of them return home and deal with the consequences and the kind of the fallout of that disappearance and, and the events of that particular night um, and that the story would really be about the relationship between the couple and that I don't want to say what happens between the couple but that because it's a spoiler but you know that that particular event for those that have seen the film was always there I think in the first draft it, it you know again 
probably because it was keeping in mind budgetary reasons, I don't think the film actually went to Southeast Asia. Um, and th another major issue was that we, that in the first few drafts, we didn't reveal what happened to the the guy that went away, that that, that disappeared. Um, probably inspired by the story, the, the true story that it had come from. But um, throughout the the development process, we kind of felt that people wanted to be satisfied by the mystery rather than be left hanging with the mystery. So that that became a major change. And then I guess the 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 writing process really became a. Uh, and, and when it came to the, 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 you know, the latter drafts, I guess six to ten, it really became a balancing act between that that thriller sort of mystery story and the relationship drama. That that to me was the changes. Yeah, yeah, and, and I guess the idea of culpability, responsibility. Um, uh, we tried to you know strengthen that. Th you know, again, it's hard to sort of give anything away, but. Um, but yeah, mostly, I guess it was mostly structural with regard to that, yeah, as, as Felicity said, the mystery versus the, the domestic. We didn't want it to be a, an, an introspective kind of navel-gazy kind of in, uh, character study. We wanted it to be a thrilling ride, but to have all of those elements. And so, yeah, just that dance, like how much when, how much information to drip feed. That was the main thing. It was, is, it, it, yeah, it took, it took a while. And also, I think in earlier drafts, it was, it was uh, quite a lot darker. I remember a friend, and we gave it to, you know, trusted colleagues, I guess, to read drafts, even before we got into the Aurora script development process. And I remember one friend saying that she came out of it going, wow, this is about a third draft, you know. She said, wow, really made me glad that I'm not in a relationship. And, I, and I, at that point, we kind of went, ooh, we're we kind of getting something wrong here because for us, the story was about fighting hard for, for, for your family and for you, the people that you love. So we had to sort of pull it out of some darkness into the light a bit. Uh, for Kieran and also Angie, respectively, I uh, was curious about how this project was different to your past experience, largely working in short film and shorter projects. Oh, um, I don't know. As a, as a life experience, I would recommend making a film to anyone. Um, we, we had an absolute blast. It was really hard work. Um, it, took, it takes a lot longer. There's a lot more money to raise. There's a lot more people working on it. But in some ways, you know, when you're making short films, I mean, I've made short films with decent budgets, but you're still begging and borrowing and stealing and people aren't getting paid properly and you know there's all of that going on and so when we made this film it was really nice even though it was a really it's quite a small budget for a feature you know we had the people that we needed and you know we, we sort of we were resourced to a point and 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 so we could actually just focus on what we needed to do rather than worrying about any anything else um, and we just ha we had a, a great crew it was quite a small crew um, and uh, I guess we just all felt like we were doing what we had been trying to do for so many years I mean I, I remember for me pre-production was like being high the whole time because I would come into the office and there would be 35 people all working on our film and it was like just such a beautiful feeling you know to have that it was so I felt so proud and inspired by it yeah look and, and one thing um, you've made some short films uh, I'm guessing yeah, yeah look it's it's 
it's not that different a, a, a process, uh, you know, when you're on set, um, uh, you know, and, and the post-process, I guess, uh, pre-process. And, and we intentionally, we wanted the entire production methodology to sort of follow very closely, uh, you know, the, the sort of the ways that we'd worked in the past. I, I'd, I'd often worked with small crews and kept it light on its feet, and I, and I liked what that did, and I liked the environment that it created, and we were very determined not to have anyone on set who didn't really have a job rather than having, you know, six girls from the makeup department just sitting there filing their nails, which you see a lot, you know, it's, it's a real waste. We wanted all the money to go on the screen. So it was not dissimilar to a short film shoot when, you know, when we're in production. I guess the stakes feel a bit higher because you've had um, people throw a bunch of money at you and, they, and they, they're trusting in you and uh, so the stakes, there's a bit more pressure. but. The pressure actually, um, personally, I feel it, it sharpens you and focuses you. And you know, I found the entire experience just so beautiful. I, lo I love it. I can't wait to do it again. Um, yeah, and it's just longer. You know, <laughs> it just takes longer, and there's a lot more to it. But not that different. There's a question at the back. Oh, hi. Um, I was wondering on finance. How did you raise the finance, and who provided it? And um, another question, as soon as I saw your title, I wish you were here, um, the first, first people I thought of was Pink Floyd. Did, did, you, um, did, they, did, did you have to purchase the, uh, the rights to, the, to that? Yeah, I rang up Dave Gilmore and said... Uh, <laughs> um, no, look, uh, the, the I'll throw you over to Angie with regard to the financing, but um, the, the title actually came in very late. We, it had an earlier working title that went through 10 drafts and we shot with that title. Um, and we always knew it wasn't quite right. Our distributor kind of knew it wasn't quite right. And we were searching and searching and searching for a title for so long. And um, we all knew the kind of wordplay we were looking for. Um, and it wasn't until literally the 11th hour that um, we stumbled across this one. And Angie did a search and, and, uh, and found out that the, the name itself was uh, open for us to use. Um, yeah, you can talk a bit about that actually as well, I guess. It's all Angie's department. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's actually no, there's no real copyright or anything on titles, but you do need to do um, your due diligence to make sure that it's not going to be easily confused with another film. I mean, it just really helps you in that way in differentiating your film from other films. And, and it literally was the 11th hour, like we were going to print with the movie and I think like the day before these guys I think you emailed me and said, what about this? And I was like, wow, it's, that's, that's it. That's fantastic, you know. At that stage, you would have gone with anything, though. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> um, and just with the financing, um, uh, Screen Australia, which is the federal funding agency, Screen New South Wales, who did, did the Aurora program, so they had paid for the development of the script. Um, Hopscotch, our distributor, put in some money. We have an international sales agent in Denmark who put in some money. Um, and there's a great new thing in Australia called the Producers Offset, which is like a tax credit. Um, yeah, so it was um, fairly, you know, a, a lot of films made in Australia are sort of put together that way. Yeah, it wasn't, quite, wasn't quite anything especially unusual about it. The, the, the good thing, though, just on that for anyone who's uh, in the business of making films is, you know, what really um, ensured that this film got over the line? I mean, there was, there's, there's three sort of elements. You've got the screenplay itself, like the script, the story. Um, is it working? And then there's the team behind it. Um, and, and, you know, fortunately, I had Angie there who's got a great track record with her shorts and 
Um, you know, we we done a bit of stuff at Blue Tongue, and so it sort of was a good package there. But the thing that categorically got it over the line was the budget. Um, you know, we, we came in with a budget that was under two million dollars when we when we applied for finance, and you know, had it been just another million or another million and a half, I mean, it's it's a deal breaker. It makes we'd probably still be searching for the finance. But if you if you're developing ideas. Um, and you can keep them contained and achievable and under that sort of, you know, anything north of $2 million becomes a different ball game. But they're looking for these projects and they've got money, they want to help people. And, um, you know, we're very lucky here, we're very privileged that the government will actually finance projects like this and, and allow you to do it. So just a bit of advice for anyone who's in the game. I think there was a question just here. Um, it's a question for you. If you were to make your next film and had more money, would you do it the same way? As in small crew? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're actually developing our, uh, we're sort of financing our next project now. And um, yes, it's, it's, it's a bigger budget in that it's period and it's got a lot, it's a lot bigger, it's a much bigger movie. There's bigger sort of action sequences and so on. So it requires a lot more money. Uh, uh, but always the idea has, has been to shoot it the same way. Yeah, keep it light on its feet, flexible, concentrate on the characters, always keep the idea of the aesthetic there and, 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 and never, uh, what's the word, uh, compromise on that in any way, shape or form. So it's not quite dogma or anything like that where you don't pay attention to the aesthetic. Uh, but, you know, there's just nothing there that's not needed, nothing gratuitous or superfluous, I, I guess, yeah. There's a question right next oh, to you. Thanks. Um, I'm just curious about the script development process and in particular um, Aurora. At what, um, at what point did the script go through Aurora and um, Angie, were you on board at that point or did you come on board after, after that? Me? Yeah. Um, yes, I was already on board. Um, mm -hmm. I think these guys bought me the third draft and then I think we did another two drafts on spec and I think it was... Yeah, we applied for indie vision. We actually applied for a few um, rounds of various types of funding and, and kept getting knocked back, which was absolutely devastating. Um, so when we finally got into Aurora, it was amazing. And, and, you know, things tend to work out the way that they're meant to, and it was actually yeah. just so much better that that had happened. Sixth draft into Aurora? I think so, oh, yeah. okay. Wow. Um, so and so we did another... Sorry? It was quite advanced by the time it got to Aurora. Yeah, yeah which was really lucky, actually, because it, in Aurora they really rip your script apart mm. and fortunately for us because we were already at a sixth draft we really had a very clear idea of what we were trying to make and yeah. so a lot of the feedback that we got was very consistent mm. um, and we were also able to kind of just keep it on track because we really were okay. you know we, we were getting close to honing it to what it was meant to be um, there were other people in the same round who were like was sort of um, first or second draft and they found it quite uh, difficult because it really just Mm. They pulled everything apart, and and uh, I think they really struggled with trying to put it back together again. Yeah. You um, often get very contradictory opinions. I mean, because it is art. All cinema is is it's it's subjective, um, and so you'll get these extraordinarily reputable, incredible, and highly regarded ind ind individuals saying your film should be this, you know, and then you've got someone in the other corner saying it should be this, and they're completely different things. So the uh, quite often the writers uh, find it quite traumatic, but we were we were fortunate, as Angie said, that we had a consistency because we were further down the track, I think, yeah. yeah right. And also, I think we went from Aurora and got financed very quickly. It was a, almost a matter of months before we had our distributor and our sales agent so that we could apply for Screen Australia money. So it all happened very, very quickly after Aurora for us. 
Do we have any other questions? Just um, fantastic film, guys. I just wanted to ask Thank about you. the music in the film and the use of sound. It felt really sort of restrained and really sort of carefully timed. Um, and you know, some movies can really overdo that and sort of really kill moments by just trying to force something on the viewer with the music. And I was wondering, is that something that um, sort of eventuated after they had a final edit, or was that something you kind of had pre-planned from the very beginning? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm really glad you asked it, actually, because um, you know, I come from a background of music. Music's really important to me, but I was determined uh, with this film that, um, and, and I said to Angie, let's keep a music budget out of this. We don't want to have a music budget. Um, and, you know, but I think we, we had a contingency there if, if, if it was required. Um, but I was determined that the film would work uh, without music, that, that, that the, the, the cut would work perfectly without, without any kind of um, safety net. And, and um, music with film is beautiful um, if it's used the right way, but I, I, I just um, I, I don't like it when it's manipulating you through areas that, uh, that, that, that the script's not managing to do. Um, and so it was very important to me that the film worked without music, what, except for the opening sequence, which is always designed around a track. Um, but then, you know, we were very lucky, uh, you know, like we, we did have a little bit left over, we had enough to play with, and um, <clears throat> I, there was a couple of areas in particular that I knew could be augmented and, and would be better with use of, of, of a track, and so I'd, I'd worked with Tim Rogers um, from UMI, you, you know, a few years earlier on a music video, and just uh, I loved his sensibility, I loved his, his wordplay, um, and I uh, just asked if he'd be interested in composing some tracks, and... Um, you know, for, for virtually nothing, and 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 he jumped on board, which was amazing because er everything he wrote, the first the first things that he presented to us were perfect. Um, but then you can talk about Rosie because that was interesting too. Um, yeah, and I was just going to say um, what that meant with Tim's songs is that lyrically they are about the movie. So when you listen to the lyrics, that it's talking about the characters of the film, which is really great. Um, and then. We then got to a point where we'd, we'd placed the songs in and it was really close to getting down to the wire of having to finish the film. And, um, but we, we realised that we did need some score in, in certain places and, um, and we hadn't thought about that or hadn't, hadn't, didn't have anyone lined up and, and our sound uh, assistant happened to be a musician and she said, well, why don't I go home tonight and I'll just put down some stuff so that you can... Um, T tell whoever you're meeting with, you can play it for them so they'll know what sort of thing you're looking for. And she, poor darling, stayed up all night, came in the next day looking like a complete wreck, but had put down this track that she played for us and, and Kieran and I just looked at each other and went, that's, that's the score, that's mm. the movie. And, and so we just said, can you do it? And she, she did, mm. and she did an amazing job. Mm. And it is, it is used very sparingly. I think if you're going to, you know, personally with a film like this one, you know, it's not a flat-out genre movie. We wanted to, you know, I wanted to use music to full effect so that if it was going to be used, it was going to be used uh, at the right time and very subtly but very effectively. Same as the psychology of camera. I, I, I prefer, uh, you know, subtlety that, rather than massive, big, broad brushstrokes that really draw attention to either music or camera or production design or anything. I like to sort of... I like the idea of just subtly... subtly um, you know, working working with audiences rather than you know shoving stuff down their throat. Let them work with the the uh, ingredients. You know, and and uh, you know, yeah. Good question, though. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'd like to uh, you to thank 
Kieran, Angie and Felicity for coming along today. Uh, Wish You Were Here opens nationally in cinemas on Wednesday, the 25th of April. And uh, it, it, I, I loved the film. I hope you did too. I'm sure if you've stuck around for the Q&A, you did too. So I hope that you uh, tell everybody to go and see this really remarkable piece of filmmaking. So thanks so much, Kieran, Angie and Felicity for joining us today. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's great. And thanks, and thanks for, for coming, coming along, along. You know, on a Sunday. It's really cool. Thank you.